Okay, so first um, I'll explain the title a bit, or at least what I mean by it. So the, uh, the intellectual life that I'm talking about today concerns two things. The life we live here at Thomas Aquinas College, but also the kind of life for which this education is a preparation. These are in a way two and in a way one. And I'm focused upon the way in which they are one. But I hope to distinguish them a bit at the end if I have time. I call the life that we live and prepare for here the intellectual life because it is a life lived for the good of the intellect, truth, and for the highest truths most of all. This life, I claim, is ordered to charity in the deepest sense. And it is that order that I want to clarify. I do so through a consideration of an objection that a Christian might make to the life that we live and prepare for here, an objection concerning the place of charity in our common life. So the objection is simple, but I, I think it should be stated in context. Let me begin by laying out some of the critical features of the life we live here. As the Blue Book puts it, liberal, liberal, liberal education aims to benefit the learner in a specifically human way. This is implied even by its name, which means the education of a free man. For no ma animal except man is capable of freedom. But more precisely, it is the education of a free man insofar as it helps him to achieve freedom. Yet it does not try to help him through any and all means, but specifically through knowledge. Accordingly, we must ask what kind of knowledge suits the free man so that he becomes free in the acquiring of it. We must therefore first understand the essential character of the free man. Perhaps it will help to contrast him with his opposite, the slave. The slave is characterized by living for another. He is, as Aristotle says, not his own, but another's man. A living possession. Thus it follows that the free man lives for his own sake. The man is his own man. Okay. The life we live and prepare for here is one focused upon freedom, which is understood in terms of being one's own man. Now, already you might see the objection. Charity seems other-oriented. The charitable man seeks the good of others, and therefore he lives for them. Is this in opposition to the free man? Let me deepen the question. The Blue Book goes on to, and by the way, Blue Book, right, is the, the name we affectionately give the proposal for the fulfillment of Catholic liberal education, the founding document of the, of the school. So the blue book goes on to consider the kind of knowledge that the free man is interested in. Now, there are in general two kinds of knowledge. Such knowledge as medicine or jurisprudence, for example, is practical. It is desirable exclusively or at least chiefly for the sake of action. But another kind, theology or natural science, for example, is theoretical. It is desirable in itself. Therefore, if the free man is properly concerned with what has intrinsic value, his education must concentrate upon theoretical knowledge. The authors then explain the difference between these two kinds of knowledge in more detail. Quote, knowledge does not become theoretical simply because someone does in fact desire it, but is or is not theoretical because of its own intrinsic character. We can see that this is so by considering how one desires theoretical knowledge. When knowledge is desired from a theoretical motive, 
it is desired for the sake of the knower as such. That is, it is desirable for the perfecting of his understanding. So the, unquote. So the free man is interested in theoretical knowledge over practical knowledge, and this because practical knowledge is desired for the sake of something outside of itself, action, rather than for its own sake. While the free man desires the kind of knowledge that is desired for the sake of the knower as knower. Based upon these points, the Blue Book's authors conclude that the knowledge concerning the productive arts, whether servile or fine, are clearly no essential part of a free man's education. So the objection can now be made in context. It would seem that the life we live and prepare for here is ordered in some way selfishly, or, to state it more gently, perhaps, it so deeply emphasizes theoretical knowledge and freedom that the charitable life, the life ordered to the good of others, is put in a secondary place. Is the life we live here opposed to charity, or does it at least make charity a secondary good? If so, are we not disregarding Christ's universal insistence that to imitate him is to serve? He came to serve, not to be served. And he tells us often that the greatest in the kingdom is he who is the servant of all. Okay, so that's the objection. Now, it seems to me that you could practically make this objection in two ways. First, you might think that the very account of theoretical knowledge overestimates its goodness, the theoretical account that we see in the Blue Book, the founding document of our school, overestimates the, the goodness of theoretical knowledge and overestimates the goodness of freedom, as understood, and that human perfection should be sought elsewhere. Secondly, one might grant the order of the practical to the theoretical, but still think that this account does not place the goods of the intellectual life in the context of the whole Christian life which must consider the happiness of those around us. Both of these possible ways of making the objection must be, must be addressed. But it should be clear that they are indeed parts of one objection, to this extent at least. The objector looks at the account of the good or the goods that the Blue Book presents, and it looks at them as part of the, uh, at the, uh, that the Blue Book presents as parts of the chief goods of human life, freedom and theoretical knowledge, and um, the objector looks at, the, at those goods and does not see in them a call to service. That's the way I would want to put it. The objector, the Christian objector, knows that the chief goods ought to have in them a call to service. And if it looks like the freedom and the, the theoretical knowledge doesn't include that, that, that orientation to those goods doesn't include a call to service, it seems like you've got a problem. It looks to the objector as if these goods in some way draw man away from others, if not in their pursuit, at least in their enjoyment. In short, the objection, however far it is taken, is rooted in one confusion, the apparent opposition of the good of the self to the good of the other. Okay. So let's turn to the notion of happiness presented by the intellectual life in order to address that first way of making the objection. First and foremost, I would say this. The authors of the Blue Book do not indicate that the human being rests in just any theoretical truths as the final good. While showing how theoretical knowledge is superior in itself to practical knowledge, the authors present a certain science as the supreme science, 
and the subject of that science as the reason for the goodness of all the other sciences. So to quote, human understanding cannot be perfected by knowledge of an order which it has itself produced, as, for example, the order in an artifact or in a constitution. Such an order, since it is the effect of human intelligence, is to that extent inferior to man. But nothing is perfected by reflecting within itself that which is inferior to it. Thus, the natural objects of theoretical interest are the things better than man, so that whoever intends to become a free man will be chiefly concerned with the study of God and divine things. This means that his proper concern will be the study of theology, which has God as its subject and proceeds in the light of faith. <clears throat> it is the knowledge of God and the sciences that study him, metaphysics, natural theology, and as I will try to consider a little bit at the end here, sacred theology. It is in uh, the knowledge of God and the sciences that study him that the supreme area, that is the, that, that area is the supreme area of theoretical knowledge. Indeed, in accounting for the worth of the other sciences, the authors of the Blue Book bring them back to the subject of the supreme science. If nature were not the work of an intelligence superior to ours, the Blue Book says, the effect of a, that is, the effect of a divine art, we would not become more perfect just in understanding it. Our relation to nature would be only practical. We would confront nature as the potter confronts his clay. Unquote. So the authors draw this point from Aristotle's words in the parts of animals, where he considers the worth of knowing all things in light of, quote, the artistic spirit that designed them, unquote. So, the theor so theoretical knowledge, the theoretical knowledge that the intellectual life chiefly seeks is the knowledge of God and of divine things that pertain to, the things that pertain to God. And in knowing and considering lower beings, <clears throat> even beings lower than ourselves, we see in them the artistic spirit of the Creator. And thus we see God in them. So it is not theoretical science simply speaking then that is being presented as the supreme object of the intellectual life. Rather, it is God whom we are coming to know through our, invest through our investigations of the theoretical sciences. These sciences are of intrinsic worth because in them we are knowing something of the mind of God. Moreover, as the passage cited above indicates, the intellect is the power in virtue of which man is distinguished as man from other natural beings. Hence, it is in the perfection of the intellect that man is perfected as man. Hence, as it is in the perfection of the intellect that man is perfected as man, then it is the contemplation, the active and focused consideration of God, it is in that contemplation that you find human perfection and happiness. This view of happiness, implied or more or less stated in the Blue Book, is made explicit in the education that the Blue Book presents and in the other writings of the authors of the Blue Book. So, I mean, juniors here have just finished a a semester's worth of account of how contemplation of the divine is the supreme, the supreme end of natural end of man. Um, the uh, senior year we devote it to the study of the Trinity and the Incarnation, and the founders have been clear in all their every time they talk about it that that that's 
that's why we do what we do here. There's two orders. There's the order of learning and the order of perfection. And that what we're doing is, is really crowned in that senior year theology where you're able to study the Trinity and the Incarnation with real profit to your, to your soul <laughs> because you've been prepared with the kind of knowledge that you've gone through prior to that in various ways. And then in their writings outside um, of this, a couple examples that I was coming across is Peter DeLuca's essay on liberal education and citizenship where he traces out the, the whole argument and he actually, I'm going to bring it in a part later where he really locates charity in the, in the intellectual life as we're talking about, so I'll bring that up. Um, the, uh, the authors of the Blue Book are also following St. Thomas as, er as well as Aristotle here, of course, and Thomas sums up the position I'm, I'm outlining nicely. Man's highest, quote, man's highest operation is that of his highest power in respect of its highest object. And his highest power is the intellect, whose highest object is the divine good, which is the object not of the practical but of the speculative intellect. Consequently, happiness consists principally in such an operation, namely in the contemplation of divine things. So, of course, happiness in this life is imperfect. We can only imperfectly comp uh, contemplate the mind of the Creator. And if we have time, I'll say more at the end of this talk on, on this distinction. But the point here is that the goodness of the theoretical sciences is found principally in the knowledge of God. And it is in drawing our mind to God that happiness, to the extent that we can have it, is found. So, the primary goal of the intellectual life as we are considering it here, then, is not theoretical knowledge, simply speaking, but the contemplation of God and of things as manifesting the mind of God. From this, we can draw a further and extremely, I think, extremely important point. In the act of contemplation, the appetite, or the will of man, doesn't rest in himself, but rather in God. So this is how a uh, passage from Aquinas is Der Veritate. And so, just as God acts in every agent because he is the first efficient cause, so also is he sought in every end because he is the last end. But this is to seek God implicitly. For the power of the first cause is in the second, as the principles are in their conclusions. But to resolve conclusions to their principles or to secondary causes, to, or secondary causes to their first causes, belongs only to the power of reasoning. Hence, the rational nature alone is able to bring back secondary ends to God by way of resolution so as to seek God himself explicitly. And just as in, demonstrate, as in demonstrative sciences the conclusion is not rightly known except through resolution into the first principles, so also the appetite of a rational creature is not right except through an explicit appetite for God, either actual or habitual. So just as we must bring, so end quote, just as we must, must bring all efficient causes back to God as the principal cause, we must see him as the end by which all other ends are ends, all other goods are good. He is the good by which all goods have their goodness. For God is the cause of all being and existence, and thus the perfections that are found in things, the desirability that is found in things, is from him and in him in a more perfect way. When we seek to contemplate God in all things, it is because we love God. So on account of this, um, Peter DeLuca, as I was mentioning earlier, finds charity at the heart of the intellectual life. As he says, quote, God is the best and therefore the most lovable being. To know him is to love him, and charity is first and foremost the love of God. 
Love of neighbor springs from that, and therefore, even though it may be only possible through a glass darkly, knowing God even in this life is good. So once we see that the contemplation of the divine is rooted not in the love of our own perfection in some self-focused way, but rather upon the love of God, we begin to see how it is that the intellectual life is centered around charity. For the man who contemplates God in himself and in his creation is not self-focused. He is focused upon God. He contemplates God not for man's sake, but rather for the love of God. The will rests not in the created goodness of man's delight, but in God. Moreover, the one who contemplates God in this way conforms himself to God. For knowledge is is, uh, caused by the experience of truth, which is itself a conformity of the intellect to the being that is known. Aquinas puts it this way in the De Veritate. He says that truth is, quote, the conformity or or adequation of thing and intellect. As we say, as we said, the knowledge of a thing is a consequence of this conformity. Therefore, it is an effect of truth even though the fact that the thing is a being is prior to its truth. And the point being, again, Aquinas is focused on a slightly different point, but that when we come to know know something, it's in virtue of our mind conforming to a being. And what makes the theoretical sciences of intrinsic worth is that we're conforming our, our mind to the being of God. So the contemplator of God conforms himself to God. Thus, the objection is overturned in part. The intellectual life, as we are considering it, and when it is lived rightly, aims at God as the ultimate end, and thus it does not overemphasize the good that it seeks. And to bring this back to the Blue Book's argument that practical knowledge is not an end in itself, we can also see that the intellectual life seeks God in the supreme way. For the practical intellect is ordered to production. It seeks to bring about something. The carpenter brings about a table. The painter brings about the painting a painting. The poet brings about a poem. In all these cases, the artist, whether it's a fine art or a different art or, or a manual art, measure, the, the artist measures his product by means of his own intellect. That is, his vision and understanding and art rule or govern the product. This is a good thing, and it's even a great thing insofar as it imitates God's creativity. But for the artist to truly delight in God through his art, he must see or bring into his art the rule and measure of God's mind. And thus the artist must seek to conform himself and his understanding to the mind of God. And thus, in short, although I'm sure this is kind of a kind of quickened way to put it, he must contemplate God in or through his art. His art is not the end in itself. There is a theoretical move that completes the goodness of what he is doing. As the authors of the Blue Book say, quote, human understanding cannot be perfected by knowledge of an order which it has itself produced. Thomas clarifies this this way. Note, however, this is Thomas, that a thing is referred differently to the practical intellect than it is to the speculative intellect. Since the practical intellect causes things, it is a measure of what it causes. But since the speculative intellect is receptive in regard to things, it is, in a certain sense, moved by things and consequently measured by them. It is clear, therefore, that, as is said in the metaphysics, natural things from which our intellect gets its scientific knowledge measure our intellect. 
yet these things are themselves measured by the divine intellect, in which are all created things, just as all works of art find their origin in the intellect of an artist. The divine intellect, therefore, measures and is not measured. The natural thing both measures and is measured, and our intellect is measured and measures only artificial things, not natural things." Unquote. So God's mind is the rule and measure of things. Our mind is the rule and measure of our artifacts, tables, paintings, poems, all the things we produce. Thus the goodness in our artifacts will depend upon our minds being conformed to the mind of God. And it is this latter good that is or is perfected in the contemplation of the divine. We are not made perfect by goods we produce, but by the uncreated good. Okay, so I think the first way of making the objection, I would say that that where the person, the objector, is arguing that the intellectual life is not ordered to the highest good in the highest way, I would say we've answered that. The intellectual life is not self-focused. It is indeed focused upon the supreme end, God himself, in the supreme way. And we have begun to answer the second by seeing that this life is not the intellectual life is not selfish. It's not self-focused. However, we can still wonder how it is that the intellectual life precisely includes a call to service, serving our neighbor, loving our neighbor as ourselves. The simplest way, I think, of uh, responding to the second way of making objection, or really responding to that, how there's a call of service in the intellectual life, um, would be to point to the facts just established about our motivations that the man who lives according to, the, excuse me, namely that God is the measure of the intellectual life, and that the man who lives according to that measure seeks God according to God's goodness. So that is, just as God's goodness is such as to draw all creation to himself, so also the man who loves God wants to draw all creation to God, especially the rational nature. So. To incline to the contemplation of the divine is to incline to bring all rational creatures to contemplate God. And that's the point I want to clarify more here. So to see this, we'd have to distinguish, first of all, two kinds of goods, the common and the private. This is a division according to whose good something is. So, for example, a common good, strictly speaking, is a good that many... It's a good for many at once. Its goodness is communicable or shareable. The private good is simply good for one alone, at least simply speaking is good for one alone, and its goodness is strictly speaking not communicable. So, for example, my shoes are private goods. I can enjoy them or or use them, but insofar as I am enjoying or using them, no one else can enjoy or use them. I can't communicate or share the goodness of my shoes without giving up the goodness of my shoes for as far as my own use or enjoyment is concerned. Hence the, uh, the old joke, right? Why, um, why, why never criticize somebody unless you've walked a mile in their shoes? Because then you'll be a mile away and they won't have any shoes. <laughs> so they won't be able to catch up with you at that point. Well, assuming the ground is not perfectly smooth. <laughs> so, because, so, shoes are good in a privative way. Their goodness is restricted to the one using them, strictly speaking. 
When, when I consider the goodness of truth, though, or peace or justice, I'm considering goods that are not reduced or restricted to one person's enjoyment. Rather, these goods are shareable. Justice is good for all at once. Truth is enjoyed by many at once without anyone's enjoyment reducing or restricting the goodness for others. Thus, a common good is a good that rules and measures the one who enjoys it, for it doesn't, it's not tailored to him as a particular or in particular. A private good is ruled and measured, strictly speaking, by the one who enjoys it, for its goodness is restricted and tailored to him in his enjoyment of it. God is not only a common good then, right, but the common good. He is the supreme end who is universally the end. He is not just good for all creatures in the way that a kind, in the way that a kind of private good might be good for many, right? So I'm thinking here, like I can say, shoes are good for all, but I don't mean that this pair of shoes is enjoyed by all at once, but rather this pair of shoes is enjoyed by this person, this pair is enjoyed by that person. They're all private goods. They're universally good in a logical or universally predicable sense, but they're not uh, one end for all, each individual, each actual existing shoe or pair. I guess one shoe is good too. (laughs) So when we look to God, right, we say he is the same good for one and for all. Thus, when we consider that it is the goodness of God to which the intellectual life is ordered, and we see that God's goodness is common or communicable, then we see that the intellectual life is ordered to the supremely communicable good. To love this good, then, is to love it as it is, that is, to love it as shareable or communicable. So Aquinas, whom again we saw clearly stating that happiness is the vision of God to the extent that one can have it, argues that even as we advance in the contemplation of God, we advance in the desire to save our fellow man, which would be to share, which, uh, which saving them, which would be to have them share with us in the, in the vision of God. So he puts it this, he talks about the grades of charity this way, quote, we can consider three grades in charity, but God ought to be most especially loved for his own sake. For there are some who freely or without great vexation are separated from the leisure of divine contemplation so that they are concerned with earthly affairs. And in these there is apparently either no charity or very little. Some, however, so delight in the leisure of divine contemplation that they do not want to turn away from it, even to apply their service to God for the salvation of their fellow men, the service to God to the salvation of their fellow men. The highest degree, the third, are those who rise to the heights of charity so that even as they advance in divine contemplation, which they delight in most of all of these people, serve God in order to save their fellow man. This is the perfection meant by St. Paul in, the Rome, in, in his address to the Romans, where he, said, where he says, I, wish, I wished myself to be anathema from Christ, i.e. separated from him for my brethren. And what he says to Philip, I desire to be dissolved and to be with Christ, but to abide still in the flesh is needful for you." Unquote. So St. Paul cannot actually desire to be damned, Thomas explains, but rather when you compare the goodness of one's participation in the contemplation of God to the participation of the body of Christ in the contemplation of God, the latter is more desirable, even for the individual. For the individual is loving and communi- <laughs> for the individual is loving the communicable good more than he loves his participation in that communicable good. 
So to love God for his sake and thus to desire his goodness by saving one's fellow, um, fellow man then doesn't take away from the desire to contemplate him. It's specifically the other way around. For as Aquinas just noted, even as you advance in that, that love of contemplating God, you're more inclined to serve God and neighbor, uh, serve God by saving the neighbors, your neighbors to bring them also to that uh, enjoyment of, of the contemplation of God. If this sounds strange to us, I suspect it is only because we are so used to thinking of happiness as a private good, something that belongs to us as individual autonomous wholes. For when it comes to obvious common goods, we see that the desire, that to desire the good is to desire it according to its communicability, which is to say we desire it while recognizing that it belongs to us as parts of the whole to which it belongs directly, that whole is what belongs to directly. So we say someone is a good team player in a sport when he serves the good of the team, which is found in the well-ordered parts and in victory, right? He's, it is really his good that he's working for, but he is a part of that good in its perfection. He, he, he has it, it belongs to him as a part. <laughs> and so he desires it, really, as it, as it is for all. <laughs> And then the person who is a, who, who's a show-off or something, when he places the good of the team below his private desire, we, we call, you know, we would have that term show-off as a derogatory term for the person who clearly places a good that's private to him over and above the good of the team. Ever so much more so with the courageous man, the soldier who is willing to sacrifice his life for the good of the country. We see that he loves the good of the whole, and recognizes that it belongs to him as a part of that whole. He doesn't see it as a good for somebody else, strictly speaking, but he sees it as a good of the enjoyment of which, insofar as it belongs to him, is as a part. And so he can, he can sacrifice that part for the good of the whole. Thus, to love the common good according to its goodness is to love it as the good of a whole of which each of us is a part. Thus, to desire that good in itself is to desire the good of the whole. Um, as John Nieto put it in an article some years ago, the appetite is satisfied by the same good, so the appetite of the individual is satisfied by the same good that we say is also the good of the whole, the good of the city in this case, a good that can belong to many. But it is more satisfied by that good as possessed by oneself and others than as possessed only by oneself. The former is a greater satisfaction. Unquote. If we love the good for itself, we love it as the good of all. We want beatitude. It is a common good. If we want it properly, then, we want it as the good of the whole body of Christ. So I'm going to quote here Marcus Berquist at the end of his, uh, his uh, lecture on the common and private goods, towards the end of that. Or I think he, he's applying what, what I've been saying much better. He applies it and says it much better. Um, really, in some sense, to the life that, as we live it here. Um, something, and it does it in terms of, he talks about it in terms of a failure that I'm sure we've all experienced. I certainly have. How often have you found yourself in the middle of an argument, defending and even advocating a position because it is your own, even though you can see, if only dimly through the haze which the passion of disputation creates, that your adversary has the better case? For those of us who are involved in the intellectual life, this is a major stumbling block and occasion of sin. If the truth is not a common good, what is? 
If we subordinate the good of truth to the private good of our self-esteem, what excuse can we offer to the one who is the truth itself and the good who is common to every creature? Given the universal goodness of the truth, the only right attitude is to order oneself to it, to discover it, to communicate it, and to defend it." Unquote. This is the goal and the way of the intellectual life. We seek so to conform ourselves, so to so conform ourselves to the goodness of the truth, perfected in the knowledge of God's mind, that we are inspired in all things to discover it, to communicate it, and to defend it. Thus, when it comes to, for instance, very briefly turn to the corporal works of mercy, we must say that the pure and complete love of the truth for its own sake inspires us to perform these works for the sake of the ultimate end. We do them and make way for them in the intellectual life, not because we love the goods of our bodies more than the contemplation of God, but because we want the deeper good that requires the bodily goods be attended to. So the intellectual life is indeed a call for service. Indeed, it demands that we serve for love of the contemplation of God. Um, the way that uh, Aristotle talks about this at the end of the Eudamian Ethics is, to, is that God commands, he talks about God commanding the, all the, <laughs> commanding all the goods for the sake of the final good of contemplation of him, not as a king, although we could say that, he does that too, but not as a king, but because he's the end, right? You want to see that end in all things and draw all things to that end, all the goods that are in human life that you see as goods for your neighbor, therefore the sake of that you're bringing your neighbor to the contemplation of God. So I'm going to finish with just a few uh, more thoughts here, and then we can talk more about anything that's coming up. The, back to the beginning, I said I was talking about the intellectual life as we live it here and, and also the life as we prepare for it. I guess while we're here, right, we really are spending a lot of leisure time devoted to these studies and to these studies in a very theoretical way. But I would still want to call the, you know, when we go out into the world, and we're all, gonna, we're all doing that, and we all have to do that a lot, <laughs> usually, unless you have a very particular vocation, I still think you want to call the life that you're living, the intellectual life, to this extent that what we're doing here prepares you to draw all things to the contemplation of God. So however, wherever the, to whatever level, to whatever extent one is able or not able to attend to the theoretical sciences, one can still take the formation here of trying to contemplate God in all things and that seeing him as the end and is the very motivation for the, the service and the, that we owe to our, to our neighbors. It's why we want them to have the, why we want to do the corporal works of mercy, why we want to do all the practical things that we do to uh, attend to human life. Okay, so I think I'll end it there, and um, maybe there's some of the things, other things I want to say that will come up in the Q&A. So there we go. Thank you. Thank you.